if you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 through 28. And before we read, I want to share a story that appeared in a 1988 copy of Reader's Digest. I was just, you know, browsing my, my uh, Reader's Digest collection and happened upon this 1988 story. Um, it's, a, it's a contemporary adaptation of one of Aesop's fables, and Aesop's fables, and you might uh, recognize it sounds a little bit like another story you might know. So I, I'm going to share the story and ask you just to hold on to it, and we will come back to it later. And it goes like this. Many years ago, a group of boys went on a camping trip, and one of the boys went off by himself, determined to hike to the top of a mountain. And when he reached the top, he looked around and he could see forever, and he was thrilled that he had made it up there. And just then he heard a, a rustling sound at his feet, and he looked down and he saw a rattlesnake. And before he could move, the snake spoke to him. He said, I'm about to die. It's too cold up here on the mountaintop, and, and I'm freezing up here. There's no food and I'm starving. Put me under your shirt and take me down into the valley where I can be warm and survive. Oh no, said the boy. I know what you are. I know you're kind. You're a rattlesnake. If I pick you up, you'll bite me and I will die. I, I'm not picking you up. Of course, of course I wouldn't do that. No, 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 said the rattlesnake. I wouldn't do that to you. I will treat you differently. If you do this for me, you'll be special. Others will be amazed at your ability to handle such dangerous things, such wild things. You will be great in the eyes of others. I won't harm you. I'll make you great. The boy resisted for a while, but this was a very persuasive snake with, with great convincing promises. And at last, the boy tucked the snake under his shirt and carried him down to the valley. And he laid him gently in the grass, and suddenly the rattlesnake coiled, rattled, struck, and fatally bit the boy on the leg. You promised, cried the boy. And the snake replied, you knew what I was when you picked me up, and it slithered away. We'll come back to that story later. I think we'll find that it has a lot in common with our passage today. Let's start with a word of hope, right? <laughs> 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 through 28. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, then we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ, the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. 
Then the end will come when he hands the kingdom of God the fa- to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. From he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to, dis- to be destroyed is death, for he has put everything under his feet. Now, when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself, who puts everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. The word of the Lord. Everything hinges, says Paul, on the resurrection of Jesus. That is our good news this morning. That is the single most defining moment in history, the one in which everything, all of reality, changes. There are some in Corinth, it seems, who do not believe in the resurrection, in the idea of resurrection. And so, Paul spells out two possibilities for them. Either there is no resurrection, in which case our faith in Christ is baseless, He's no different then than all of the other failed messiahs before him. And not only is Jesus no different if there's no resurrection, but the world is no different either. There's no justification of humanity on the cross. There's no forgiveness of sin through the one perfect sacrifice of Christ. And there is no new hope. And all who place their trust in Jesus are misguided if there is no resurrection. Or the other possibility is that there is resurrection, and everything is changed. There is justification and reconciliation through the cross. There is resurrection life, which is victorious over death. If there is resurrection, not only does the news of Jesus change, but through Jesus, all of creation changes too. Paul leaves them with two options. Either Jesus has changed nothing, and our faith is foolishness, or Jesus has resurrected, and everything has changed completely. And there is no middle ground. Faith in a crucified but not resurrected Messiah is faith to be pitied, Paul says. To be fair, those members of the church in Corinth who were struggling would be naturally inclined to deny the resurrection. We would, too, if we were hearing such a thing for the first time today. It defies our understanding of science. It defies our knowledge of the world. That just isn't how things work. People can be resuscitated, but not resurrected, not according to how we understand the world to work. To the church in Corinth, it was, it was mostly just the wrong order of things. It doesn't happen that way. Resurrection was early. It was out of order. Resurrection was an expected part of the Jewish faith. It was anticipated, but not like this. It was to happen to everyone at the end of all things, not to one person in the middle of God's timeline apart from everyone else. It wasn't so much that they didn't believe that Jesus could have been resurrected, but His resurrection was just too early. Frankly, it's not too different from some of our own reservations. It's easier as a people of faith to embrace the historical reality of the resurrection of Jesus than it is to embrace the reordering of all of God's creation that happens as a result of the resurrection of Jesus. Like those in Corinth who insisted it doesn't happen that way, we too might find it difficult to imagine that God might be acting outside of our expectations. 
So Jesus was raised from the dead. Maybe we can accept that, uh, but can we accept that the resurrection truly changed everything? You see, I think this is where we're inclined to get stuck because the world believes, uh, tempts us to believe that the cross and the resurrection change nothing. And some of us might be tempted to believe that world's story. We have a sense, for example, that, that sometimes you just have to do what's necessary in order to get things done. Sometimes you have to fight evil with evil. Sometimes the ends justify the means. And giving ourselves o- over to a, a self-emptying pursuit of God's kingdom, it, it seems noble, but does it really work? Self-sacrifice makes martyrs, and martyrs are too dead to fix things. And so maybe we believe that 2,000 years ago a man came back to life. And that belief already stretches the imagination. But what really challenges us is the idea that life could possibly be victorious over death, that there could be victory through sacrifice, that laying down our desires and taking up our crosses and sacrificing for others could lead to anything other than hardship and pain and defeat. The resurrection might have worked for Jesus, but do we have faith that it changes everything for us too? Unlike Corinth, Maybe we don't deny the historical event of the resurrection, but could it be that like Corinth, our lives deny the new reality that the resurrection brings? Do we live like everything has changed, or do we live like nothing has changed? These are some of the new realities that we discover in Christ. We discover that because of the resurrection, death is not something for us to fear. There is life on the other side of it. Those who die in Christ will be raised in Christ. Our faith in Jesus calls us to surrender power because we trust in the power of Jesus. And we learned that we don't need to be control, in control for Jesus to be victorious. We release control in order to live in the freedom of Christ. Control is a myth that we find exhausting to pursue when instead we could find freedom in the truth that we belong to King Jesus, and He is good and faithful, and we find freedom when we surrender control to Him. Sometimes we might be tempted to believe that those in power are corrupt, and if we were in power, we could fix that corruption. And so we pursue power in order that we might be the fixers, but in reality, we're just one more person striving for power and trying to make the world match our expectations for it. One more person not yielding to Christ but instead trying to do things ourselves. In Jesus, we discover that we're not called to be fixers. We're not even called to be doers. We are just called to be. To be in Christ, that is what we are called to. Not to be fixers, not to be doers. We are called to obediently and patiently be. We trust in the efforts of Christ rather than our own efforts. Because we are not called to take the burdens of the world onto ourselves, but to release them to Him. Our job is not to fix, but our job is to say, yes, Lord. And so we pray, trusting in the work of Christ. We don't act according to our own efforts, but we wait and we trust. And when we are called by Jesus to act in accordance with His will, we say, yes, Lord because the victory isn't ours to achieve, the victory is His. I want to invite you this morning to release, 
just to let go and to trust in the victory that is already won rather than any victory that might be achieved or acquired by us because the resurrection changes everything. I, I hope that we can truly hear this this morning. It is enough to be obedient. It is enough to let God do the doing and to pray and to wait and say yes as we are called to say yes. To take matters into our own hand isn't, it not only takes unnecessary burden upon ourselves, it's sin. But we're tempted to be fixers, and doers, and pursuers of a world shaped according to our own desires. Can I invite you this morning just to think of what that world would be like, that world shaped exactly according to our desires, our expectations, our preferences, our, our politics? What would it look like? What would you fix first? What's the first thing you would fix? How would it affect others? Who would benefit the most? Who would suffer the most? And can we confess that despite our best intentions, it would not look like God's kingdom. It would fall desperately short. Maybe part of the reason that we're not called to be fixers is because we would be terrible at it. Can you identify the ways in which your ideal world would differ from God's kingdom? Because maybe that's a good starting place for repentance. Lord, forgive me for pursuing a nick-shaped world. One of the things I've learned through, through a lifetime in the church is that no institute is better at working against itself than the organized church. We work against ourselves and we're good at it. We, we want to live in a world and, and we want to be a, a part of a church that is not ruled by power, and we could, we think, if only we had the power to change it. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, how often are we tempted to strive for power or a position of authority or, or tempted to force change through innuendo or complaining or grumbling or expectations voiced through anger rather than praying and trusting and saying yes? It's good to want a church with flourishing ministries that transform lives. We should all want that. But I want to tell you about one of the churches I attended as a kid. Some of the members felt that the efforts of the church were inadequate, and they began to grumble among themselves. And do you know what it accomplished? It tore the church apart. It robbed the church of its opportunity to pursue transformational ministries because the church's efforts had to go instead to patching and healing the division that was caused by the grumbling. When we try and take control, our own efforts set us back. And rather than the flourishing church we desire, we're left with a church that's hurt and divided. How easy is it to trust in the old ways, the ways that the world seems to believe have always worked, the ways of power and influence and control and manipulation. We see those efforts in families to manipulate and control one another, to control kids or grandkids. We see them in governments and nations. We see these efforts among churches and in groups of friends and on school boards and everywhere in which people perceive that an advantage might be attained through power. But just like the rattlesnake on the mountain, when we handle things we ought not handle, we get bit. We know what it is before we pick it up. We are not take-controllers. 
We are not fixers. We are not doers. We are obedient servants. We are in in pursuit of a kingdom shaped not by our desires, but by the will of Christ, and it is enough to be, to be present in Christ, patient in Christ, obedient to Christ. It is enough to be, but it's easy. It's too easy to let the old broken ways rob us of resurrection victory. The rattlesnake promised greatness, and there is an allure to things that are toxic to us, fatal for us. But despite our good intentions, and and more often than not, they are good intentions, to fix a world gone wrong, the world gone wrong is not our enemy. The other side of an argument is not our enemy. Alternative visions for how the world should work are not our enemy. Death is our enemy. And the good news for us this morning is that death is already defeated. Our enemy has already been defeated by our resurrected Savior. Imagine the victory death must have felt when it nailed the giver of life to a cross and watched Jesus take his final breath. Imagine the dark and terrible glee that it felt knowing that it was all-powerful. Power is death's greatest weapon, and death is power's greatest weapon. And together, in that moment of crucifixion, they must have felt unstoppable. But that glee was short-lived, because in only three days, death was defeated. Christ was resurrected from the dead, and all of creation was reordered with Him, no longer hostage to the finality of death, because now, after death, there is life. Death has been defeated. Its power has been depleted, but it is desperately breathing its last breath today as we await the second coming of Christ when death will finally be cast away forever. And now the only death, the only power death has over us is the power that we give it when we live according to it. When we speak with unkindness, we give death power. When we pursue power over others, we give death power. When we act with greed or when we disregard the well-being of others, when we insist that the world can only work according to the ways of death, we give death power. When we choose ourselves over others because we're unwilling or unready to die to ourselves, knowing that there is resurrection, life, even in death to self, we give death power. But the difference between resurrection, life, And death is that the power of life doesn't depend on human effort. It is not influenced by human effort. We cannot resurrect ourselves or others. Resurrection belongs to God alone. And if you want to know the victory of resurrection life, you cannot achieve it yourself. You can only accept it. You just have to be. And so we we have to choose. We can feed death while it's holding on to its last breath, giving it power that it wouldn't otherwise have, or we can surrender to and trust in resurrection life, placing our faith in the work of Christ and in the victory He achieved. We can do or we can be. We can pick up the rattlesnake knowing that it bites foolishly thinking that we might be the exception. Or we can trust in the victory of Christ, whose work is not ours, 
but in whose work we are invited to participate. Allowing him to be our lead, we can do or we can be. And today my prayer is that we choose to be. Will you join me in prayer? Precious Lord, we recognize that you are our all in all. You are all we need. All power is yours, all authority is yours, and you exercise it with love, compassion, grace, and mercy. Forgive us, Lord, for the ways that we have used death as a weapon in our lives through unkindness, through control, through manipulation, rather than surrendering our lives to you, trusting in your victory. Forgive us, Lord, for the ways that we have given ourselves over to things that are destructive thinking that we might be the exception or in this instance there might be an exception. But teach us instead, Lord, to place our faith and our trust in the victory of resurrection life. You alone are victorious. And in you alone, we can know victory too. May we put down the weapons of death today. Trusting in the resurrection life we are offered in Christ. We love you, Lord. You are merciful and good and mighty. And we pray this morning that we would trust you enough to just be, to be in your presence, to be your beloved children, to be without feeling compelled to do because doing is not our job. You are the healer. You are the redeemer of all things. And our trust is not in ourselves, but in you. We love you, Lord. And we pray all of these things in the name of our resurrected Savior.